0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Greg Garrett, the author of a new book called Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse. And this is a book that flits nimbly between the King James Version Bible of the Book of Jeremiah and the ethics of Reinhold Niebuhr to Marvel Comics' zombie Marvel and to Walking Dead and any number of other extremely pop cultural moment so it's a very encompassing sort of book and I want to start Greg by asking you if I may the question very basic question that you seem to ask yourself in this book or what gave rise to it is you know why do we love zombies so much?
1: Oh Sam that is such a good question because I I did not really set out to write a zombie book and over the last couple of years there have been some people who rejoiced at the idea and some people who just sort of thought that it was a waste of my grey matter if you will. And what really intrigued me about it was the, the simple fact of its popularity, the fact that it's become one of the most sort of prominent meta-narratives in a world where we don't have many meta-narratives. There are not so many stories that we can sort of rely on and expect that people are going to know them even if they're not, you know, avid consumers of them. And the sort of ways that it began popping up for me about how this had become completely pervasive, Walking Dead was one of the markers for that. And which is, I
0: think you say in the book, the most popular television program on the yeah, planet.
1: Yeah, and and ratings were down slightly for the last season, which probably is indicative of what a difficult season it was. But in the, the 19 to 49 demographic, it, it is the most popular TV show in every market where it plays around the world. And I mean, that in itself is stunning because it's uh, it's a show that a substantial part of the population is not going to watch because of you know the sort of intense gore and, and uh, violence that's attached to it. So when you see that, that people are drawn to these stories, whether it's The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, which at its heart we're reminded at least once a season is actually a zombie apocalypse story, or any of the huge run of films or the games where you and your friends can get together and kill zombies— And then it's all the way over, you know, because your audience is a literary audience, a literate audience. You know, there are are great literary novels and short stories using the trope of the zombie apocalypse. Can
0: I actually ask just to kind of back up a tiny bit? I mean, because this does seem to be relevant. I'm interested in what you, however loosely, define as a zombie, because, I mean, two of the books that are kind of touchstones in this are Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which doesn't actually contain any zombies, and... Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, which yeah. by common consent, they're, they're kind of more like vampires. Than yeah, sort of v-
1: vampire yeah. yeah. Those two books were a part of the sort of general idea that I had about the zombie apocalypse being an apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic tale in which you have a small band of survivors who are making sort of daily choices about how they're going to continue on in survival, and the idea actually came to me from Angela Kang, who's a writer and executive producer on The Walking Dead. And in an interview that I did with her, a public interview in Austin, Texas, she reminded me, our show is not about zombies. It's, it's about the humans and the choices that they make to survive. And so the differences are really sort of surface differences. You know, and in both of those stories, you've got a, a lone survivor in, in I Am Legend or a, a couple of survivors in, in the road you know, who encounter a few other survivors on their way. But they're making the same kind of decisions. They are resisting being assimilated, either being eaten by other human beings in the road or you know, being killed or, uh, God forbid, turned into one of these other things, the vampire things in, in I Am Legend. So even though it's not the same sort of supernatural or scientifically transformed kind of monster that we're looking at, it's the same human issues and existential... societal breakdown. Yeah, the societal breakdown, everything that we knew, the religious, the, the legal, the, the societal institutions are gone. And, and how do human beings react to that? And what are the choices that they make? Are they choices that, you know, sort of differentiate them from whatever monsters it is that they are trying to survive? Or in the process, do they maybe become more like those monsters and lose their humanity? Yeah.
0: I mean, zombies obviously go back to, you know, Haitian voodoo. Yeah. But you sort of have, as your year zero, 1968, don't you? Yeah,
1: 1968 is the, the sort of ground zero for the modern zombie, and that's George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. And that's the place where in popular culture, we begin to turn away from the sort of Haitian or Caribbean idea of um, the the zombie who is transformed or controlled by a master who – and it's basically a sort of extended metaphor for slavery. And so in, in that early story, the Haitian zombie is the victim. Of the story, but what George Romero and his team did was to take the idea from I Am Legend of, you know, what if there is some sort of external threat and the world has fallen apart, and and how would people react to that? And uh, 1968 is one of the sort of flashpoints in American history. It's one of the sort of the worst years on record for us. That's Vietnam War and assassinations of beloved leaders and uh, changes in cultural and uh, political life. I mean, it's it's one of those sort of periods where, uh, as I mentioned in the book, it, it seems like death sort of gets up and walks around in response to the perceived threat level. And uh, so 1968 is, is the place where we can sort of say this is, this is our genesis for the modern zombie. And uh, in the book, I sort of think of this as the, the Romero zombie in the same way we might think about the Stoker uh, vampire as opposed to the sparkly vampire of recent lore.
0: Yeah. And the characteristics we think of as associated with zombies, particularly with George Romero, they eat brains. Mm-hmm. Why Why do they eat brains? What's the significance
1: of that in your well, in one of the early zombie stories, and, and the metaphysics of zombies are as mysterious to me as they are, I think, to everyone else. Uh, I had someone at a talk in, in Oxford at Blackwell's ask me if I could explain the sort of science behind zombies. And I said, no, not really. Max Brooks sort of endeavors to do that in the zombie survival guide. But it's, it's sort of one of those givens. They just do, you know. Um in in the the movie they they eat brains because of the the pain of being dead. And it it sort of became a, a trope. But um, you know, I think zombies will eat whatever part of you they can get. Because that's that's sort of their characteristic. I mean it's that, that ravenous hunger is uh the consumption is the defining kind of element.
0: Well the other thing we know about them, at least we did know about them, is that they lumber. I mean I think there's a kind of turning point and you'll set me right if this is wrong but it felt to me like 28 days later was this point at which zombies previously there was a sense that you could kind of outpace them with a brisk stroll and suddenly in 28 days later they were running like hell
1: yeah and that is how just important wrong. was that shift oh you think uh, it's wrong well not, not in the sense that it's bad storytelling because it, I mean that ramps up the, the the drama and the danger but I mean it feels like zombies are bad enough already. You know, they come after you, they eat you, you become one of them, Their army grows and grows. But yeah, running zombies is just, I think it was a sort of brilliant reimagination of it. And, and we see that in, in World War Z as well, the, the film, not the, the novel. And I think what it does is just, you know, we live in a more fast-paced world. And I think of uh, Henry David Thoreau complaining about the fast pace of his 19th (laughs) century life. You know, in in Walden, he talks about the world, you know, moves too quickly on our 20-mile-per-hour trains and our daily newspapers. And I think in a a very real sense, you know, letting, you know, aside any sort of metaphorical responses to how the world seems to be going to hell, it just seems to be kind of appropriate to our fast-paced lifestyles. It's, you know, our zombies should run because we sort of live by microseconds these days.
0: Now, i interested in, in your book, you talk about the, the sort of ethical issues that zombies raise. I mean, you know, your zomb- zombie apocalypse is, you know, shadowed by the apocalypse of the book of Revelation and the idea that actually, you know, you talk about how they're human but not human and that this presents these kind of ethical dilemmas. Can you talk a little bit about where they sit on this kind of borderline?
1: Yeah, and, and I think there's actually two things there. I mean, there's there's both the ethics of survival, which is one thing to think about, and and then the ways that we define ourselves in opposition to the zombies and and recognize our sort of similarity to them. The trope that uh, kind of informs Shaun of the Dead is going back to the earlier George Romero, Dawn of the Dead, which obviously the title is echoing. But at the beginning of that movie, Sean and Liz and his mates are, are sitting in, in the pub, and, and Liz, Sean's girlfriend, says, basically, we are dead. You know, we are living this life where we do the same thing over and over again. And she says to him, I want to live. And I think that's one of the things that we actually get in a lot of these narratives because Robert Kirkman, the creator of The Walking Dead, wrote uh, some copy for the first graphic novel collection of The Walking Dead. And basically what it says is, uh, in a world where the dead walk, we have to learn to live. So some of the the really good reviews of Shaun of the Dead talk about how we can be caught in this sort of life in which we are dead to our surroundings and dead to each other. Uh, so one of the things that's well, a lovely sight
0: gag, isn't there, that yeah. when the zombies start to appear they just think that they're random hungover people. Yeah, I just random really hungover them, yeah. people
1: and and uh, Shaun and Ed uh you know sort of are making fun of the the zombie moan. And uh that's that's it's a joke you can make because, of course, Shaun of the Dead is a a, a zombie comedy. But we find it in, in some of the other stories as well because there is this, this sort of sense that it is so easy for us to be sunk in our lives. You know, We were talking about Thoreau earlier who in Walden says, you know, I went to the woods because I wanted to learn to live and not come to the end of my life and discover I had not lived. And uh, it also makes me think of Irenaeus uh, who talks about how the, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. And so one of the things that happens in many of these stories, Shaun of the Dead being a great example of it, The Walking Dead being another, is, you know, characters begin at this place. And during the arc of the story, the arc of their characters' lives, they begin to change in ways that often are powerful and profound. You know, by the end of Shaun of the Dead, he's become a hero and uh, someone who is willing to fully commit to love and to fully commit to being alive. And, you know, if he still sits down and plays video games with Ed, who is now a zombie, that's not the totality of who he was. That's all that he was at the beginning of the movie.
0: Also, you know, you're allowed to kill zombies. I mean, one of the things, I mean, I'm wondering how much that's an expression of, you know, we would love to be killing people, but we can other these people. I mean, there was a video game called Carmageddon in, I think, the early 90s. Which famously was a very depraved video game where you could drive around and the idea was to run over as many pedestrians as you possibly could and blood yeah. would splash up your windshield. And of course there was a huge outcry. It was banned and they said, Okay, we'll wreck on it. They're now zombies and the blood's green and the gameplay was identical. Yeah. But everyone was oh, oh that's fine now. You know?
1: Yeah. And it's it's also sort of like uh, in, you know, sort of big budget action films. One of the things that we try and do is to, okay, we're going to have a bunch of ultrons or uh, a bunch of artificial constructs. And so the idea is, you know, if, if we are destroying these soulless things, then we feel better. Yeah, we're the goodies. You know, we're, we're the goodies. But, you know, even so, when you look at uh, a lot of these stories, they're similar enough to us. And in many of these stories, because uh, people are often confronted by members of their family or people they love who have been turned... Um, and it, it be, it's a particularly traumatic sort of thing. Um, I talked in the book about uh, a recent run of Archie Comics. And Archie is a traditionally... cultural range, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's traditionally a, a comic for kids and, you know, tweens, maybe teenagers. You sort of... It's quite retro, isn't it? I mean, the yeah, Archie sort of goes back yeah, to the Yeah, it's like, like or you know, life anything, in yeah. some sort of 50s small town with a soda shop, right? And they did an immensely popular and critically acclaimed run of zombie apocalypse stories set in Riverdale, USA. And one of the most, I mean, powerful v- versions of this uh, story element that I've ever seen is when Archie is, is forced to destroy his father's zombie form. I mean, and it's, it's, it's brutal and it's heartbreaking and one of the psychologists that I read uh, in doing research for the book talked about how basically everybody who has survived this long in a zombie apocalypse is going to have post-dramatic stress disorder. Because simply to stay alive, you're going to have to do some kind of violence. And even if it's just to these soulless zombies, it's it's going to catch up with you.
0: Now, do we find, I mean, because you do talk about the link between the sort of zombie apocalypse and the Christian apocalypse, there's a, you know, there's a lot of theology in this book. Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to this, but do we find zombies as a cultural tradition, I mean, other than majority
1: Christian cultures? Is it a kind of particularly Christian thing? I, it actually is not. There is a whole run, for example, of Japanese zombie films. And part of that is just the interplay between our film cultures. You know, we, we steal from each other with some regularity. But there are a number of not particularly good Japanese zombie films. I think probably we resonate with it more in the West because of that you know, sort of underlying tradition. But it is something that seems to have more of a global popularity, although they may not be taking the same things away from it that we do here in the West. Do you think
0: that the, I mean, Stephen King in his 1970s book, Dance Macabre, Mm -hmm. talks about quite an Aristotelian idea that we read horror stories because we can put our fears, we can sort of exchange our fears for kind of synthetic ones. I mean, do you think that the sort of zombie apocalypse in a way serves that function that it makes things manageable? You have this idea of something that however horrifying it is a you can hit it with a baseball bat and b it stops when the movie stops
1: yeah sam i think that is one of the real sort of therapeutic uses of the zombie story and you know we talked about how there is a a rash of them post 9-11 you know starting with uh, 28 days later and i think that that is a part of the popularity because the zombies are a, a really good kind of metaphorical representation of a world where we are afraid of a lot of things. And uh, a lot of people talk about how one of the particularly useful things about zombies is they're multivalent. So, you know, they can be terrorism, or they can be uh, Ebola, or they can be economic unrest, or, you know, depending on your political persuasions, they could be Syrian refugees, or they could be Donald Trump and people who voted for him. But at the end of the day, you know... You can sort of have the feeling that, yeah, I'm satisfied by the way this story ended. And the other thing is that, you know, as bad as the world looks to me, at least people are not walking around trying to eat me. Yeah. You know, there's you can put it to bed. Well, not so far. Not so far. Uh, And and I have high hopes that we will continue in that vein. Yeah. One of the things that you don't really talk about in the book, which I I thought was sort of curious,
0: is vampires. Because they seem to be, I mean... You very seldom see vampires and zombies in
1: the same narrative. And I was interested in what you'd use to account for that. Well, I think a part of it is that vampires probably are us working out some different kinds of existential questions. And I did talk about uh, zombies in the first book that I did for Oxford, which was a book on uh, stories of the afterlife. And I think we're dealing with a sort of different kind of metaphor there. I mean, we are still sort of dealing with, you know, a sort of in-between kind of monster. And as is typically monstrous, it's identifiable and yet other. But one of the things that that we're dealing with, at least with the sort of classic Stoker vampire, are, are societal desires for life and youth. You know, we uh, see people going to all sorts of resorting to all sorts of things to to keep their youth as as long as they can and the the vampire story will often show us you know the you know Dracula and his youthful beauty but at some point in the story we're going to realize that there are a lot of costs to be paid for this yeah. and and they are in, in a sense soul costs s o u l you know to gain these things that we think we want so much we will have to become creatures that we can't mm-hmm. uh, fathom being
0: see what i mean a reason that I raise that, is it, it strikes me, which you don't do much of in the book. That there's a sort of almost straightforward vulgar Marxist reading that says zombies are a bourgeois terror of an underclass rising up to throw you out. You know, there's home invasion. They're you know, they're, they're the great leveller. And yeah. the vampires are the toffs. You know, vampires yeah. are the bourgeois fear of being entirely done down by a sort of aristocrat who comes yeah. and preys on your women and gets through into your house. And, you know. Do you think there is a sort of straightforward political is, reading of these two there things? There
1: is, I think, a, a brilliant version of that that I do talk about in Living with the Living Dead, a graphic novel called The New Dead Wardians. And in that graphic novel, a number of uh, sort of upper-class British people become vampires in order to protect Britain and the Empire from the zombie apocalypse. And and that is a brilliant sort of place. And one of the few places where the, you do see those things intersect, I think that you would like it a lot. But yeah, it is that. very much a class sort of thing. You know, we we see all of these sort of milling zombies, and it is only the upper class people who are allowed to take the cure and become vampires. Oh, that's... Again, poor old bourgeois get stuffed. <laughs> um,
0: and you... You just, just say in the book there's, there's sort of two two endings, two two basic res- resolutions to
1: the zombie right. apocalypse. Could you talk a bit about that? I mean, the, the hope stroke, no hope kind of version. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's sort of the nihilism versus hope kind of ending. And in the classic sort of Romero version of the zombie apocalypse, uh, typically it's it's the end. And maybe it's left open-ended. For example, at the end of Dawn of the Dead, uh, the two sort of surviving characters get in a helicopter that's almost out of gas and fly off. Uh, and we predict it's not going to end well. And and in some of the other Romero films, it's, it's more even disastrous than that. At the end of Night of the Living Dead, the one surviving character who happens to be African-American is shot and killed by the sheriff's posse. And so it's like we had followed him all the way through this story and we had rooted for him. And it's like, thank God, it's... Oh, we'll look at that. So that there is um, a very strong strain of the zombie apocalypse story, which is uh, properly, we are going to do ourselves to death, you know, and, and, and it's sort of a metaphorical understanding of that, you know, whether it's through climate change or uh, through nuclear war or, or through whatever. But then there's also uh, a set of stories in which there is this very real sense that, the zombie apocalypse is a, a version of what Tolkien called the catastrophe, the good catastrophe, in which, as uh, one cultural critic put it, the zombie apocalypse is actually a reboot that allows human existence to sort of move away from this zombie-like existence what we, where we consume it comes, mindlessly. called creative destruction, maybe. It's yeah, a, yeah, creative destruction is, is a nice way to think of it. And so in, uh, particularly in some of the films, in Shaun of the Dead, in Zombieland, at the end of 28 Days Later, there's this sort of affirmative, hey, there's still life out there. It's sort of like the, the dove bringing back a branch yeah. in, in the Noah's Ark story. And it, so it's, it's, it's happening more in uh, shorter narratives than in long form narratives. You know, I was mentioning to you earlier before we started talking that The Walking Dead is sort of mired in this, I can't see how it's possibly going to end well kind of thing. But I have sort of the opposite feeling about Game of Thrones. I feel like they are maneuvering the forces of good and light and, you know, order so that the the forces of darkness, you know, the, the White Walkers and the Whites may actually be destroyed and things might turn out all right. I mean, that's that's my suspicion sort of based on, on how that narrative is being no, no, set up. No spoilers yet. And, and I think I want to just briefly ask...
0: There is a sort of almost stop beginning to a certain number of zombie apocalypse films which I'm guessing almost kind of is stolen from Day of the Triffids where somebody wakes up in hospital and yeah. the world's gone to hell in a handbasket I and mean, we see it in 28 days later we see it in the walking dead I think Right. Really. we see I mean is is that straight out of Day of the Triffids or has it got a longer No I think that's I think that. that's
1: probably a good a good connection and it's useful because we have a character you know, who it's usually, you know, we we have the ordinary world established, you know, sort of thinking about uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, hero's journey kind of trope. And so a story begins in the ordinary world. And so in, in the early uh, phases of The Walking Dead, we, we meet Rick Grimes when he is a small town sheriff's deputy. And we find out that he's having trouble with his wife. And, you know, we sort of learn a little bit about his friendship with one of his fellow deputies. And then he wakes up. And all of a sudden, we've Cross the threshold. I mean, we are in an absolutely different world, and it's it's a really nice way to launch us into the adventure really quickly because the stark contrasts. And and the other thing that I think is really useful from a storytelling point of view is that that character knows no more about this world than we do, and he can become sort of our filter. We encounter it and we learn about this particular iteration of the zombie apocalypse as he does. So, what are the rules in this world? What they run? These zombies run? (laughs) Well, okay.
0: Okay. Well, stay safe out there, kids. Greg Garrett, thank you very much. You're so
1: welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me.
0: And in this week's section in the magazine, we lead off with Dominic Green's review of two new books about Henry David Thoreau, the great American transcendentalist and recluse, well, temporary recluse in Warden Pond. We also have Philip Hensher, writing about a family who struggled against Mussolini, and Simon Cooper delivering some absolutely scorching line drives in his takedown of John McEnroe's latest ill-advised autobiography. Also, new fiction from David Van and Amanda Craig is reviewed. And if you'd like to subscribe to the magazine, go to www.spectatorco.uk forward slash podoffer and you'll get a discount.